Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel, verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 18, and 24 through 25. Uh, you can follow along on pages 6 and 7 of your bulletins. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child, he fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet the name of Jedidiah. We are continuing today in our study of the life of David after a two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, returning back to this low point and, in a way, high point in the life of David. Let's take a look further, but first, let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come now 
that you would shine the light of your love, of your Holy Spirit upon your words, that we would be able to glean truth from it, that we would be able to see you in all your truth and mercy. We pray that we would be changed. We pray that you would uh, catch our attention. We confess our distractedness. We confess that our minds, more than that, our hearts can be all over the place. Draw us in to attentiveness to you. And we need your help for that. So please give it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See how you'll age in 50 years. That was the promise held out by one of those, you know, gimmicky photo manipulating apps. I noticed this one the other day on my friend's Facebook timeline, and I almost laughed out loud. Why? Well, first of all, see how you'll age in 50 years. Well, clearly the target audience was a bit younger than we were. Second, I'm staring at my friend's before and after photo, and there before me is an only slightly distorted picture of a Harrison Ford. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, trust me, uh-uh, you know, you're no Harrison Ford, right? But then, then, of course, I'm barely finished mocking my friends when Okay, curiosity gets the best of me, and I click on the site, and just as I'm about to upload one of my own pictures, well, the site then, of course, requests access to my public profile, to my photos, and my personal contact list, and that was just asking a little bit too much. So I guess I'll never know. I'll never know if I would have gotten a slightly Asian-ish remix of Robert Redford. <laughs> you just don't know, you know? But as you can see, for guys in their 40s, they should just change the name of that app from see what you'll, how you'll age in 50 years to see how we can encourage you in your self-deception, right? <laughs> that would be more like it. Self-deception. Now, under far less humorous circumstances, self-deception is what characterized David's state of mind as our story here opens in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David, the great king of Israel, the one described as a man after God's own heart, had screwed up something fierce. As we saw in the previous chapter a few weeks ago, David had committed adultery. And as nightmarish as that failure alone was, and I know some of you have dealt with that nightmare all too personally, but even that was only the tip of the iceberg. The sin underneath the sin was David's pride and the nasty sense of entitlement that he had nursed within his heart. 
See, David's greatest lust, his greatest lust problem was his lust for power. He had become convinced that everything in his kingdom, everything under the sun belonged to him, even the body and the soul of another woman. Even the wife of one of his most trusted, most loyal soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. Then, of course, there was the ugly cover-up where, after a few failed attempts, David eventually ordered Uriah to the front lines of battle where, according to plan, Uriah was killed along with 17 other men, all of them shamefully sacrificed to hide the evil that their king had done. It's been over nine months now, and Bathsheba is now his wife. She's birthed the son that they had conceived. And as far as David can tell, he had gotten away with it all. His heart is hard, and he's just lost in self Deception. See, this is a story about David's climb out of the self-deception of sin. This is a story of the start of the redemption of the biggest mistakes of your life. Doesn't that sound great? It's a story of the start of the redemption, even of the ordinary but habitual mistakes of your everyday life, too. Do you long for that redemption today? In other words, this is a story about repentance. Repentance. Now, that's an intimidating word, isn't it? Repentance simply means turning. Turning away from your sin. And turning back towards God. Repentance starts with daring to be honest about your moral failures. And it ends with dashing into the arms of a God who is infinitely willing to love and forgive sinners like you and like me. Repentance is the turning point from spiritual hardness to softness. The turning point from hiding in the shadows to walking in the light. It's the turning point from living in slavery to lies to living in the freedom of the truth of God's amazing grace. Are you in need of a turning point today? If so, then you are in need of the grace of repentance. And you and we together need to see what this passage says about repentance. And this is what it teaches. It teaches us at least three things, many things, but at least these three. First, the process of repentance. Secondly, the promise of repentance. And thirdly, the prognosis of repentance process, the promise, and the prognosis of repentance. Let's take a look. First, the process of repentance. Notice, first of all, in David's life and in ours, 
First, repentance begins with God's loving initiative. It begins with God. Notice how the story opens. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. In the way the story is told, we have every reason to believe that David would have remained in his lostness and his hardness of heart if God hadn't intruded with his love. This is consistent with the testimony of Scripture, even with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, where we're told that God grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you know today that repentance, seeing your sin for the evil that it is, and seeing God's grace for the wonder that it is, is impossible apart from the help of God? One thing you can say to God today then is this, God, I can't change my own heart. Do you know how liberating it is to pray that? God, I can't change my own heart. Will you change me? Will you give me a spiritual wake-up call? Will you raise the deadness to life within me? Will you help me to see my sin for what it is because I'm blind? Will you help me to see saving grace for what it is? God, give me grace to repent. Will you pray that today? Because repentance starts with God's loving initiative. Secondly, repentance involves God being honest with us. It's our honesty with God, of course, but it begins with God's honesty with us. Nathan was a prophet. And in verse 9, we heard him tell David the truth about what he had done. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in your eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Listen, we don't have personal prophets, but we do have a prophet of a different sort. God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he speaks to us through our conscience, you know, uh, through a nagging feeling that we've done something wrong. But most especially, God convicts us of sin, leading to repentance when God the Holy Spirit speaks to us through Scripture. His written word, his prophetic word that shows us left from right and up from down, good from bad and righteousness from sin. And so it's worth pausing for a second and asking yourself this question, Has God been telling you the truth about your sin and you've been refusing to listen? Which leads us to the next point. Third, repentance often requires a side door entrance. A side door entrance into our hearts. What was Nathan's way in? He didn't just stroll up to David, you might have noticed. Didn't just go up to him and say, hey, look, Dave, we need a chat. Got to talk about that thing that both of us know you did. Sometimes God will enter the front door like that. But here, David is so resistant to God. 
as we sometimes are. And his conscience is so hardened that Nathan comes in and what? He tells him a story. We read about it in verses 1 through 4. There were two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had lots of sheep and the poor man had just one little lamb. One day the rich man needed to fix a meal, but instead of cooking up one of his own lambs, he stole the poor man's one lamb and ate that. Of course, David didn't realize that Nathan was really talking about him. In fact, ancient kings often served as chief justices, and so it was probably very common for David to be speaking into and rendering judgments about disputes in his kingdom. Which is what made Nathan's approach just simply genius, right? Because it gets David to see his sin objectively like in a a mirror. It causes him to respond with compassion. It grabs his heart and it causes him to also respond with moral outrage towards this hypothetical sheep-stealing rich man. Because here's human nature. We tend to see sin better in others than we see it in ourselves. So David thinks he's passing judgment on someone else, but he's actually passing judgment on himself. By now, David is mad. He's cooking. And this is important because repentance, true repentance, engages the heart. Listen, just acknowledging your wrongs is not true repentance. Just knowing the fact of your sin is not true repentance. We must grieve from the heart. We must even well up with rage against the evil that we've discovered in our hearts. Nathan leads David in that direction, and we're told in verse 5 and 6, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And here is what is so interesting about David's anger. He calls, you heard, for the man's death. But with respect to justice, David is actually going overboard. Because under Israel's laws, the crime of stealing was not a capital Offense. So what is going on here? Why the disproportionate sentence? Here is what one commentator says. David seeks to restore his feelings of well-being in this way. He attempts to rid himself of his guilty conscience by passing judgment on someone else while subconsciously passing judgment on himself. This is deep. Listen, sometimes what this passage is telling us here, sometimes outrage at the failures of others is a way to avoid our own repentance. Sometimes outrage at other people's sins and failures is a way to seek to restore our own well-being, ridding ourselves of a guilty conscience. Do you detect that in yourself today? 
And of course, we've got tons of other strategies for avoiding repentance. We avoid the subject. We play down the offense. It wasn't that bad. We get defensive. Personally, lately, I've been noticing just how much I blame shift to detect really feeling the wrongs that I've done. When I screw up, I immediately just instinctively look for someone else who's at fault. Right? Someone, it's, it's really their fault, his fault. It's not mine. Ways we avoid repentance. Our defenses are always up. So sometimes God needs to come in the side door, doesn't he? Is God approaching your heart through the side door these days? Telling you the truth about your sin, but in an unexpected way, are you learning to see when he does? Maybe he's using a, a, a messenger that you don't like. Maybe he's showing you how mad you are about someone else's failure as a way of exposing your own heart. Are you paying attention? Fourthly, God's kindness most humbles us to repentance. God's kindness most humbles us to repentance. Nathan finally confronts David in this dramatic climax. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Have you felt God's loving confrontation lately? I mean, have you maybe even heard almost words like that in your heart? You are the woman. You are the man. You are the person. You are the sinner. And I need to tell you this, if you've never had such a Nathan moment, God confronting you and just laying you out, exposed and needy for the mercy of God, if you've never had a Nathan moment, you may not be a Christian, one who's actually come to know the grace of Christ in a saving, life-changing way. And if you haven't had a you-are-the-man moment recently, you may not be growing spiritually as a Christian. So central is repentance to the growth of our life of faith. But you also need to con consider this when God really pressed in after the turning of the tables on David after confronting him head on, what's the first thing Nathan says? This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you. I gave you this. I gave you that. I gave, I gave, I gave, and I would have given you even more. When God really wanted to invite David into that low place of repentance that he might exalt David afterwards to that high place of restored fellowship with God, he piles on reminders of his grace. Here's the principle, you see, God's Grace leads us to repentance, not guilt alone. 
God's grace, not guilt alone, moves us to repent of our sins, to be honest with our sins, to bring our sins to the one who's already proven his gracious and merciful and forgiving character again and again and again. True repentance is motivated by gratitude and by love for God, not fear of punishment, that's just another self-centered form of self-preservation, isn't it? Grace enables you to repent for the first time out of love for God. Romans 2 verse 4 puts it this way, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Don't you see in your sin, big or small, momentary or habitual, you are violating the love of God, not just the law of God. You're spitting on the care of God, not just the commands of God. Will you receive grace to repent today because he loves you so much. And if we do, this passage also teaches us that we will receive the promise of repentance. And that is simply this, the forgiveness of all our sins. This is the promise of repentance. Did you hear God's astonishing response to David's repentance? In verse 13, Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. This is, of course, how God responds to sin with a promise of mercy, of forgiveness, of a new start, of a clean slate. God tells David, I, I don't see your sin any longer. I'm not condemning you. I'm not punishing you. I'm not treating you as your sins, in fact, deserve. The good news of the gospel as we see it unfold across the pages of the scripture, of course, is that God says not just to David, but to all who come to him by faith in Christ... He says, you are not going to die. I am going to die in your place, in the person of my son, Jesus, who will gladly pay for all your sins. Hallelujah. And so we receive these unbreakable promises from God that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you have a God who remembers your sin no more. And he's removed them from his sight as far as the east is from the west. This is the promise held out to you today. If you would receive it for the first time or afresh, 
and anew. Did David accept God's forgiveness? Did he believe God's promise? Well, Psalm 51 tells us that he did. This is a song and a prayer that we're told was written immediately after these events here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Listen to how David prays over his sin, how David grabs a hold of the promise of God's mercy through this song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my iniquities. Wash away all my sins and cleanse me from my transgressions. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Do you want the joy of sins forgiven? It can be yours today if you'll simply spread out your arms in glad surrender, aware of your sin, grieving over the darkness of your heart, letting the light shine in, and simply seeing your Savior Jesus and all that he's done for you in your place and saying, thank you. That is your invitation today. Do you hear how simple this is? Are you convinced you've screwed up? Are you ready for a turning point from self-deception into honesty with God? Then stop trying to clean yourself up. You cannot do it. Stop trying to earn God's cleansing. Stop trying to wash yourself with your guilt or with your good deeds. And simply believe. Simply receive God's forgiveness offered to you in Christ. Some of you, some of us struggle more with believing in your need for God's forgiveness, not really convinced that you are sinful. Others of you, many of you struggle more with believing that God indeed forgives you. And this is where I think Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher from the 19th century, can be of great help. Here's what he said. Listen, you are a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or overmatched him. Come, Goliath, sinner. The son of David can conquer thee or save thee yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And one more time, he says elsewhere, don't you know, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. Hast thou right thoughts of God, dear hearer? If so, then thou knowest that he is a tender father, willing to wipe the tear of penitence away and press his offending child to his bosom and kiss him 
with the kisses of forgiving love. Do you want to know the kiss of God? Finally, this brings us from the process of repentance to the promise of repentance and finally to the prognosis of repentance. Lord, help us here. Prognosis, of course, means the likely future outcome of a disease, a term that doctors often use with a patient. Well, what was the prognosis of David's failures? This is what we learn, an important point. David's forgiveness was full and final, and so are yours in Christ. But forgiveness did not and does not delete or erase the real temporal consequences of David's and our sin. And those consequences were devastating. Nathan tells David in verses 10 and 11, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, verse 11, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And you see the remaining pages of the book of 2 Samuel record how from this point on, David's kingdom goes into a political and a moral tailspin, starting with his own family. In the next chapter, David's son Amnon would commit incest with David's daughter Tamar, sexually violating her. Another of David's sons then, Absalom would avenge his sister by murdering his brother. Absalom would eventually lead a coup against his own father. And as predicted in verse 11, he would sleep with David's concubines on the roof of his father's palace in plain view of the entire nation of Israel. Three of David's sons would die violent deaths. Members of David's family would be plagued by the very sins that have taken David down. The lust for power. Near civil war would eventually break out. And within one generation, the nation of Israel would be divided into two kingdoms. David's dynasty would be marked from this point on by protracted war and bloodshed. And all this Nathan foretold in verses 10 and 11. And then, of course, there was this. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But verse 14 But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. God says, yes, he does say you are forgiven. There's no more punishment for your sin left to be paid. This is not punitive or retributive, but your sin is morally expensive. This is not judgment or punishment, but the impact of your choices will not lie dormant. 
You're forgiven, but you will suffer. You are forgiven, period, but others will suffer because of you. Friends, even when David was utterly forgiven, there were still consequences to his sin. And there are real consequences to ours. The evil of our hearts, of our lives, they do impact us and they do impact other people. And we're shocked by this, right? I mean, maybe even outraged by it. Partly, I think, because we don't believe in the power of even our everyday sins. But death, someone objects? That's so extreme. But don't you know our sins every day leave a trail of casualties along the way? We don't see or believe that as a consequence of my angry outbursts, a child at home might be dying emotionally. We don't really believe that sinning against others sexually, even if consensually, can really distort their view of themselves long term and even over time leave them spiritually deadened. We're uncomfortable with this, aren't we? And a reason for this, I think, is that we only view this matter from David's perspective, standing in his shoes, hoping all traces of our wrongs will be immediately erased forever. But what if you're Uriah's family? And you've just lost a brother, a son. Maybe then you're glad to know that the Bible teaches that sin does have a real and lasting impact on people, even when that sin is forgiven? Or what if you're Bathsheba, who on several levels was exploited by her king, who lives with grief, the grief of losing her first husband? If you're her, maybe you're glad that forgiveness doesn't mean denying your pain and your loss. See, this is just part of living in a moral universe before a just God. We are uncomfortable with it, but if we think about it for a second or more, it's far better than the alternative, which is a God who doesn't care or a God who pretends nothing happened. We are more morally interconnected folks than we think. Our actions really do impact each other. That's not a curse meant to haunt you. That's a reality that ought to humble you. David's sin would have a ripple effect for generations. Our consequences of our sins do in fact ripple outward too. Which, of course, would be a discouraging or even fretful proposition, prognosis, if, again, not for the intrusion of God's mercy. We're never defined by our sins, not even the consequences of our sin, 
because God's grace has the power to interrupt the ripple. That's how the story ends, you know, in verse 24 and 25. David and Bathsheba have another son named Solomon. His name means peace. Guess what? He was a prince of peace. His nickname was Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord, because we're told the Lord loved him. David was given a little glimpse of hope that grace would triumph over his sin. That even the consequences of sin are not forever. Because David knew that even the worst of his sin could not knock God off his course to send his promised king through David's family. Jesus showed up. That's hope. That's grace. That's the power of a forgiving God who keeps his promises. Of a God who does not make light even of the consequences of our sin, but always makes the first move to take the initiative to help you to repent which is the first start to redeeming even your worst mistakes and even your everyday mistakes, dear friends. Do you want to take that start? Do you want that turning point in your life even today? Repentance is the way, don't you know? Because in Jesus' kingdom, the way up is the way down first. The road to the cross leads to the crown. Will you perhaps discover the grace, the gift of repentance? You might find life. Let's pray. And that's what we want, Lord Jesus, is life, is you, is to be more truly human, to be more truly free to be restored to you and to others around us, to believe with great hope in the power of your grace, which is greater than all our sin. We are great sinners, but Christ is a greater Savior, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.